Hey, Rockheads. Before we get started today, I want to let you know about an opportunity to get face-to-face with some of your favorite .NET rock stars at Dev Intersection, happening this October from the 25th through the 28th at the MGM Grand in Las Vegas. One all-day workshop in particular is called Building Single-Page Applications with Angular 2 with John Papa and Dan Wallin. That happens all day Tuesday. Now, this is a hands-on workshop, so you bring your own laptop and do the work. This workshop explores the core pieces that help you build end-to-end SPA solutions, including the role of ES6 in TypeScript, project setup, code structure, using data binding and MVSTAR, abstracted remote data calls through services, routing, and more. You'll see several demos and be provided with the code throughout the workshop that'll help you learn and understand the Angular 2 framework. All right, well, register now at devintersection.com, and we'll see you there. .NET Rocks, episode 1353, with guest Udi Dahan, recorded Monday, September 12th, 2016. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. Here for another hour of good, nutty goodness. (laughs) (laughs) Nutty, nutty goodness. (laughs) Nutty, nutty goodness. We're a chocolate bar. Yeah, we are. Uh, We are a little chocolatey once in a while. Nice. We use, we have plenty of nougat. And (laughs) I'm going to stop right there. You gotta just keep going. Oh my gosh. Once uh, I, I had a bunch of people over for dinner and my youngest daughter was about 10 and she was a little sassy. And a so, little. and, and, and there was somebody there who didn't really, who asked me what I did for a living because they didn't really know. And, you know, my first answer is, how much time do you have? Right. And then my daughter says, this is what my father does for a living. He goes, really? Wow. That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> and that's your job. That's his job. <laughs> oh, I love her. All right. Well, let's get rolling with Better Know Framework. Awesome. All right, dude, what do you got? I have an announcement, actually. And uh, I don't know why I felt compelled to say this, but I guess I do. I feel a little responsible. Um, I'm going dry. What's that mean? I'm not drinking alcohol anymore. I beg your pardon? The day today, we're recording this September 12th, Monday, 2016. Mm -hmm. And uh, my wife, Kelly, and I have decided to stop drinking. Hmm. Yeah. No more alcohol. No more alcohol. And the reason is that my liver saved my life. Yes. And I want it to continue to do good things for me. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, check out my other podcast called TwoKetoDudes.com. And uh, <laughs> it, it basically, I went on a ketogenic diet and let my liver burn all the body fat out and remove fat from itself and uh, um, save my life. Basically, I became non-diabetic. I got off all my medications and there you go. So, uh, rather than just sort of limp along and, uh, continue to, you know, slowly poison it, I decided just to stop. Nice. A and gift for your liver. A gift for my liver. I love my liver. That's great. I don't like to eat liver, but, you know, maybe <laughs> if you put a little bacon on it, but I'd rather eat liver than eat my own liver. How's that? Okay. So that's your better know framework. Yep. And, uh, there is this matter of a bottle of Pappy Van Winkle. 23 oh that I have, and I have decided to auction it off to the highest bidder. Oh. So, if you go to 1353.pwop.me, that brings you to a Google form. As of this recording, the highest bid is $1,500. Wow. I actually got a bid already, and uh, I'm going to let it go until I'm pretty much convinced that, you know, that it's at uh, the price, the highest price that I can get for it. Nice. So, if you're interested in a really fine bottle of bourbon, and you have a lot of money burning a hole in your pocket, just feel free. There you go. I'm not giving it away. Let it go. And, you know, I do this also partly because I feel a little responsible in contributing to the alcoholism of the .NET community for 10 years, uh, you and me both. Yeah. Well, we drank a lot of bourbon, man. A lot yeah. of scotch. Yeah. I love scotch. I love bourbon, but I like my liver more. There you go. Cool, man. All right. What do you got? Who's talking to us? Grabbed a comment off of show 1300, which is the one we did at Techorama, 
with Udi and a few other troublemakers like Bill Wagner. Yeah, great show. Uh, which we're really talking about open source because, of course, they're all in open source projects. Uh, and we got a couple of great comments there. One of them was from Manio. He says, I really like this episode because I'm personally developing an open source project. And a while back, I realized I had no license. Of course, we had a good long discussion about licensing, mm-hmm. uh, which means effectively all my code was copyrighted. Right. There's this great site, choosealicense.com. And after reading a little, I went with the MIT license, which is a good choice. Lots of people go with that one. Yep, sure. Now, I like the idea of free open source, but in the business, there's this need for support that you talked about. I recently read this article called, quote, Why I Haven't Fixed Your Issue Yet, (laughs) where the author points out that many open source projects are side projects, and people usually have a job and a family, so they cannot provide that support that the business may require. Right. And that's a great place for a paid version where the team can provide full-time support. Absolutely. it's their job, and they can make a living from it. Yeah. And I really like the place we're getting to around open source, where this is just becoming sort of the accepted norm. It's like, there's... Making money's not evil, you know, like being able to be sustainable is the thing that most people want. So my observation on this is, you know, how many times have we asked uh, our guests a question about, is it this, is it that, does it this, does it that? And the answer is always what? Two words. What is it? I hope so. It depends. Yeah, it depends. It depends, right? It depends. And it depends. It should be the answer for everything from every engineer because there isn't any, there usually isn't any fundamental truth. There usually is uh, some under conditions X, under conditions Y. And I feel that way about open source. There are some things that just want to be open. And then there are other things such as, you know, a support driven model that work for other situations. It's, it depends. Yeah. Well, you know, this is the part of that whole show we did at Techorama was this idea of you can be open source and have a paid model yep. to make it the professional product that the customers actually want. Source code's not necessarily the asset here, right? Yeah. The, the actually having a, a usable build and maintained product, that's, that's more valuable than any line of source code. <laughs> yeah. So, Manuel, thank it's you true. so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of our social media because we publish every show to Google Plus and Facebook. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. And send us a tweet. We stir our cocktails with him. <laughs> or we, we used to stir well, our cocktails. I used to. Anyway. They're virgin cocktails now. I can't. <laughs> I cannot be involved with anything that says the word virgin attached to it. Uh, I'm just going to have to let that go. Just, right? Yeah. Like, let's call it a non-alcoholic cocktail. I'll call it soda water. There you That's go. what I'll call it. Yep. And that brings us to Udi. Udi Dehan is one of the world's foremost experts on service-oriented architecture and domain-driven design, and also the creator of N Service Bus, the most popular service bus for .NET. Welcome back, Udi. Thanks, Carl. Great to be here again. Great to have you here. So, um, do you have another comment on uh, the commenter before we get started? Well, I th- I think that one of the topics that doesn't get spoken about enough with regards to open source licensing is just how frequently the companies in those spaces end up turning to venture capital right. as a way to, 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 to finance themselves. And what a lot of developers don't realize is that the amount of money that goes into these companies is staggering. Mm, So just to give you a sense of the numbers, MongoDB raised hundreds of millions of dollars in venture capital in order to finance its growth up until now. And you got to understand, you know, you take that much money, it's going to come with lots and lots of strings attached. For sure. Sure. So that, that well, whole, there's only you know, one big string, right? The big string is they want a return, right? They they want some multiplier on top of the money that they they you give them a hundred million dollars, they want five hundred million back. How do you make right. that much value out of a a, a document store data a data store? Right? I just it baffles me really what they think was yeah. going to happen. Yeah. 
Well, and and especially when you're doing that, when you're effectively giving it away for free, yeah, right. uh, for the most part, and then that means that the the business model for a lot of these open source companies is actually in the big enterprises. It means competing with Oracle and IBM and SAP on their own turf, and yep. um, it, it it's a really difficult business model that burns tons and tons of capital. Uh, and it really is, in many ways, a, a, a winner-take-all environment where lots and lots of uh, companies get burned to the ground. So, you know, the next time that you're thinking about, you know, wouldn't it be great if so-and-so technology could be free? Understand, you know, uh, somebody has to has to pay the bills. Right. And I do want to say a few words on the whole building a support-driven business. There have been a number of companies that have tried to do this. I'd say the most notable one in the Microsoft space was around in Hibernate. Yeah. And that turned out not to be sustainable, even though in Hibernate was, you know, was extremely broadly adopted at the time. They just weren't able to build a sustainable support-driven business model around that. So... It's it's not easy. It's not easy, and um, you know the path that we've gone within Service Bus has worked until now. Uh, it's allowed us to scale fairly well for the past five years. Who's to say what the future is? But it also wasn't easy for you either, right? Well, I I, I don't want to say that, uh, that 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 it was easy, but we were never really in a position of. Um, you know, saying either we take venture capital right. or we're going bust. Yep. Uh, and we've been able to come up with a pricing model that works for a large enough segment of the community uh, that enables us to continue growing and thriving and delivering more value in the long term uh, to the point where when uh, those blog posts are mentioned of why I won't fix your uh, uh, the, the, the issue that you raised, uh, we actually say, no, actually we, we, we can and will fix that. And um, so long as you're willing to, to, to pay the license along with everybody else, mm. you will get, Get really the best service that you've ever experienced and you'll get the highest quality documentation uh, and you will get support for old versions mm. because let's face it you're not going to be upgrading production systems every year yeah so you said it's worked until now is something changed well, you know, there's always that element of saying just <laughs> the oh. fact that something's worked until now is oh, okay. no proof that it's going to continue working. All right. So nothing's right? really <laughs> changed. It's still working is what you're saying. Well, yes, it's it, it, it's still working and we're still growing and, you know, more customers and we have, you know, more people all over the world all the time. Right. Um, and it, it, it's a great model that's worked for us. And we've been very happy to see other companies following in our footsteps like RavenDB and Event Store and Octopus Deploy and uh, seeing that it works for them as well um, makes me believe that it actually is a model that um, maybe should be considered a good default to start from before you start looking uh, at, at the other models that uh, haven't worked as well. It's very fair. And again, we're as the, I don't want to build this library. I want to be able to have it and use it and know that you're going to take care of it for me. So, you know, I feel a lot better about spending a little bit of money on that to have a sense of stability than I do, you know, hoping that you'll continue to donate your time for free. So and let's, sustainable software, that's what I care about. Yeah, and let's face it, the model of buy it once, expect support forever has not worked. No. It just never worked um, unless you continue as a company to grow and grow and grow and grow and grow. But then sooner or later, you reach critical mass and you can't support it anymore. So the, the whole idea of paying for somebody else to pay attention to something, curate it and keep it alive, that actually does work. I think that's probably one of the reasons why the world has embraced open source as much as it has. Even Microsoft, who you never thought would be an open source advocate, you know, understands that that model works best for, for some things. 
Well, we could talk on and on about the business side of stuff, but, you know, that's not what we do here at .NET Rocks, is it? <laughs> yeah, and I think you're hinting at something uh, that you want to talk about here. Uh, something is afoot with End Service Bus, is it not, sir? Yeah, well, it's been a long time coming, but we've got a, a major version that's uh, just about a release candidate. And, uh, you know, when we say release candidate, that means that it actually is production ready. <laughs> A real release candidate? <laughs> what are you talking about? I've, I'm not comparing it to oh. any other technologies that might have called themselves release candidates. Not SPNet uh, or anything. Uh, and, and, and tacked on any other disclaimers <laughs> after the fact. Uh, you know, that's kind of what we do. We're, we're the boring, reliable infrastructure that always works for you right and uh if you ever have a problem you pick up the phone and there will be somebody there who will solve that for you so uh you know this when we say that that that, that this is uh you know getting to that release candidate state this is after several betas that that we've put out and really you know extremely solid and um you know the 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 thing about the the, the new version of in service bus is a lot of that is I I, I don't want to say boring stuff uh, but you know that's that's kind of what people look for in infrastructure is that uh, so you haven't broken anything right that's <laughs> that's all yeah. I care about. That, you know, that, that, that's historically been the problem. We mentioned MongoDB and various other technologies before is I've upgraded and I've lost a bunch of data or yeah, right. I've upgraded and my, my system's no longer working. And I can't or, get up. Yeah. Exactly. Can, can no longer exactly. compile. So this is, I'm right. just, I, I went to GitHub because of course you build in public, right? So it's version Absolutely. six with just two open items left as of this moment of recording. Uh-huh. So, uh, but we have lots of satellite projects. So we've got the, uh, the SQL server integration. We've got yeah. the rabbit integration. We've got the Azure service bus and Azure storage queues integration. So all of that's managed in, in different repositories because, you know, the people that are on Azure service bus don't care about RabbitMQ and no. vice versa. And the people that are using SQL server for their persistence don't care about RavenDB and vice versa. Yeah. So we, we make sure that we try to be, you know, good members of the community and make it as easy as possible for people to collaborate with us without getting a whole lot of noise about stuff that they don't care about. So uh, it, it's been a long time coming. We've we've been making some really big changes uh, to the, the the core heart of in service bus, and that's the big async await thing that that happened in the Microsoft community in in, in recent years before everybody got excited about .NET Core. Yeah, uh, it turns out that actually doing a good rock solid job with async await is non trivial, mm -hmm. and that there are. Lots of ways that it might look like it works, uh, but when you put that under production loads, you find out all sorts of memory leaks or you get live locks or you get data inconsistencies. And yeah. uh, it, it takes a fair bit of time to work through those issues. Uh, we've got a great team and uh, the, the, the async await stuff is now really top to bottom. And one of the interesting things that we've done recently is we've actually been able to get the RabbitMQ guys in their .NET client to make changes in order to 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 be better citizens yeah. in this Great. .NET ecosystem that that they're in, because you know the the RabbitMQ uh, pivotal guys they're mu they're much more Java focused, and .NET's always kind of been more of a a second class citizen in that world. So we've been contributing back to to that code base, and you know we, we really try to be uh, good members of the community everywhere that we're working with, and uh, make sure that 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 our users get get the best out of whatever infrastructure they're running on so uh the RabbitMQ folks put out a release candidate of their own of their dotnet client uh based on commits that we've submitted and uh and those two things should be dovetailing very nicely to a, a, a final release uh in the future but ultimately all this async await yeah. you know why is it important it makes it go faster. Mm -hmm. It makes it the, the resource utilization much lower. Right. And um, that, that, that adds up. 
especially for people that are running in the cloud. Yeah. So all of that efficiency turns into to significant cost savings. And That's on huge. the cloud side of things, on the cloud side of things, we also did a pretty nifty thing around high availability. So you know, it, every once in a while, a cloud provider makes news because of an outage. No. Right? Never heard of such a thing. Never happened. Never happens. Hasn't <laughs> happened since Monday. What day is it today again? Yeah, nice. Uh, uh, there was a, the, again, as we're recording on September 12th, there was an outage this weekend in the Middle East and for Azure. Mm-hmm. It does so happen. that's the thing that. You know, when you're in a cloud environment, there's there's always going to be some situation where a given data center goes down, even despite all of the efforts of the various cloud providers to make sure that that doesn't happen and to keep things contained, it still happens. Yeah. So one of the things that we did was we took some of our experiences of building production-grade systems on Azure, which meant running your system on multiple data centers in a kind of active passive or active active model. Now, the way that Azure works is that you can set up a namespace that gets related to a given data center. So uh, your programming model is never at the level of the data centers directly, but at the level of namespaces. So the way that we have that set up is that when you're using in service bus on top of Azure, uh, we actually enable you to transmit your messages over two namespaces at the same time. And because we have our own deduplication logic, uh, which is better than, say, the Azure Service Bus story and Azure Storage Queues doesn't have any deduplication of which to speak, yeah. um, then we're able to make sure that even if you have an outage of a single data center, that your system doesn't stop. It just naturally fails over nice. to the second namespace. And you get that, that data center level high availability out of the box without really needing to do very much. So you know, it occurs to me that the whole advantage of using the public cloud is so that when you have an outage, it's someone else's fault. <laughs> well, <laughs> yes, but you don't only want it to be somebody else's fault. You want to make sure that even when that happens, your system doesn't go down. Yes. Now, the thing otherwise, is, it's your fault for your, cu- from exactly. your customer's point But of view. that's the problem is that it's it's always been a little bit too complicated to build these type of high availability solutions on the cloud. You just assume that the cloud's going to take care of all of that for you. But the cloud is more a collection of building blocks rather than a top to bottom integrated framework to handle all those problems for you. It's just so, other people's computers, right? So they break. Make sure you have more other people's computers to be able to not break. Right. But then you need to architect your system in such a way to make sure that you're leveraging those other computers according to the appropriate isolation boundaries. Sure. And again, you, you can build all of this infrastructure yourself. But after we've built it a couple of times, I said, you know what? This is something that a lot of people need. Yeah. Uh, and it's kind of tricky to get right. Uh, because you got to do the namespace mapping, you need to do the deduplication, and you need to have some storage. It, it, you know, it's it's not rocket science, but it's it's easy enough to get wrong. So, sure. and it's and it's relatively difficult to validate that you are right. Yeah, that's the thing that that it, yeah. it always looks like it's working until you have an outage and you realize that oh, I forgot just this one thing. Yes, there's a lot of just one things. Yeah, that next outage, you know, yeah, th- that time it's going it's going to really work. So, uh, <laughs> so, so, so we've solved that problem in our in, in our new version six. And I don't want to say that, that that we've solved it, but we've we've addressed it much better than the average Azure developer would be able to do on their own, um, because we've spent a good a good year on this uh, a bunch of other things that we've done that, 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 that make a big deal in Azure uh, is that we, we have this atomic send and receive processing. Now, again, this is the kind of thing that it sounds like a really low level de- detail. Now we got eventual consistency. Why do I care about that stuff? Doesn't really matter. 
the thing is that anytime you're building a distributed system and let's say you're getting a call that comes in and you're doing some integration and you're with a web service or a REST service and talking to a database, you can very easily get into a situation because when you're on the cloud, you don't have any distributed transactions right. that you know, either you're going to lose data or that when you do a retry, you end up with something inconsistent. Hmm. So uh, the the canonical situation is you go put something in the database, you get back an identifier, you pass that to a third-party system, and then your machine crashes, right? Now, when your machine starts up again, and if you've been smart and you've built in some retries into your, your infrastructure, then it'll say, oh, okay, I didn't finish processing that last request. Let me do that again. Now... When you do it again, that, that would be awesome, but that's a pretty big grab. Right. But how do you do that again in a way that you don't end up duplicating the same uh, business action twice? Right. And then how do you do that in such a way that when you're calling the third party system that, again, you're not sending the wrong ID over? So... You know, what we've done is we've, in essence, built our our Azure communication uh, framework in such a way that you just write your business logic inside of there. We're intercepting all the incoming calls and all the outgoing calls. We're able to get to, um, I, I don't want to say, um, you know, perfect parity with what you'd have with an on-premise for fully transactional model. Right. But pretty damn close hmm. to the level of... Um, you know, yes, if you spent a year trying to solve just this problem, you could probably solve it as well as we did. Uh, but you, it, it, it's just a waste of time. Yeah, it's not a well, it's not a well spent year. Although I got to think right. when folks are looking at Azure, don't they immediately look at Azure Service Bus? Well, that's the thing. Azure Service Bus has some level of deduplication, right. but it's kind of narrow. And, uh, in terms of, um, uh, messages coming in and messages going out. Uh, it, it really only does the um, uh, some minor level of deduplication on the messages going out. Right. So um, I, I I wouldn't say uh, something strong like uh, oh the duplication just doesn't work, but that there are enough gaps in how the deduplication works. That for many business systems, uh, that can hit you repeatedly and it will end up expressing itself as data inconsistency in your system. Right. So, and so you end up writing a lot of code to protect yourself from that. Yeah. Yeah. You, you'd end up with lots of batch jobs that you'd have to write to, to comb through your data to find these types of inconsistencies right. and support people that would have to do all sorts of bigger business compensation stuff. So again, I don't want to say that we have it perfect to the level of what you'd get with a fully transactional on-premise. Right. But let's say it's three orders of magnitude less. <laughs> three and orders is a lot, dude. That's a lot. Also, it doesn't, doesn't your uh, end service bus abstract away using an adapter pattern all these other uh, services that, you know, some are service buses, some RabbitMQ, all that kind of stuff so that you can sort of plug in Add your favorite cloud-based service bus here. Uh, so yeah, we've got lots of abstractions, uh, but yeah, we we plug into Azure Storage Queues, Azure Service Bus, Azure Storage Persistence, Azure Table Storage, uh, Azure Cloud Services. We we, we kind of take all of those collections of different services on the cloud and and put them together in the right way to make sure that you get the uh, the most reliable, highest performance uh, type of environment. And just to give you a sense of the numbers that we've gotten to with uh, with Azure recently, uh, a given Azure namespace is able to process somewhere in the area of 2,000 messages per second. Um, we've been able to saturate that and, uh, in essence, to when you're running on multiple namespaces, to saturate all of those. Yeah. So, in essence, you get to the point where using in service bus has effectively zero overhead mm. to using native Azure, uh, but cool. it's much more reliable than using native Azure by, uh, by, by a significant margin. Cool. Well, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is now? Uh, it must be that happy time again. You know it, man. 
It's time to announce that there's been a humor outage here, regrettably, at .NET Rocks. This condition will continue for the remainder of the show and will be clearing up by the beginning of the next show. That's a whole other kind of fail over. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> fail over and over and over and over. And That's over what it is. and over. <laughs> okay, I can tell your retry mechanism works great. Uh, no, it doesn't. It's, <laughs> I'm acting, but I'm not. I'm getting knack back. <laughs> That's what I'm getting. Nothing but knack over here. Nothing but knack. Negative acknowledgement. All right. <laughs> it's actually time to give away a SyncFusion Essential Studio to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. With over 650 controls, SyncFusion's Essential Studio is the most comprehensive suite of components available for .NET and JavaScript with world-class diagrams, maps, and charts. Reduce your development time, save some money, and get the best support in the industry. These are just a few of the reasons over 800,000 people make SyncFusion a part of their daily dev process. And now individual developers and small teams can get access to every single control in SyncFusion's library for free. The community license also gives you access to SyncFusion's growing library of enterprise applications like Dashboard Platform and Big Data Platform that can help make sense of complex data. Support and updates are included, too. It's a 10K value for free. Find out more and get started today at SyncFusion.com. So who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is Amit Taparia. Congratulations, Amit. Golf clap for you, sir. Just won the SyncFusion Essential Studio. Big pile of awesome from our friends at SyncFusion. So, if you don't know what we're doing here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .net Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world, and every show we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away $5,000 worth of technology to one lucky member of the .net Rocks fan club. But you got to sign up to win. And it's Udi's turn. Udi, if you had 5000 US to spend on technology right now, what would you buy? So I've always had a difficult time answering this question, but recently I've seen this, uh, I guess the word is workstation. It's this combination ergonomic chair that connected to like a monitor stand and a keyboard stand. It's, oh. it's from these, this company called Altwork. Is this so the one A-L-T-W-R-K. that has a, half the keyboard on the left and half on the right? No, no, no. You, you go to altwork.com okay. and just just watch that video and uh, imagine having this type of uh, experience of kind of being in a work but lounge chair with the monitor automatically sliding into the perfect angle uh, for you to keep working at. It is... Uh, a ridiculously expensive chair. <laughs> for All right, I see uh, typewriters and operators and old telephones. I guess they're going through the history of telecommunications here. Oh, Wright Brothers, Kitty Hawk. Are you at altwork.com? I am. The airplane, um, the computer, the airbag. So, um, <laughs> it's... Uh, the high-speed train. A-L-T-W-O-R-K.com. Yeah, the way yeah, to work. that's the one. So their promo video, and I'm watching it without the sound on, their promo video sort of going through the history right. of, of work. But the price Maybe range is on the ball, right? For the, 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 the standard workstation is 4,500 US. That's, that's yeah. in the ballpark. Yeah, yeah. Nice. That's, uh, but that's, that's, it's, I mean, but it's a chair and a desk. Like, oh my. You take, you think about the price of a standing desk and, yeah. and a good chair and stuff. Uh, this is still expensive, actually. <laughs> and I like it because the it's, feet it's, raise up. You can recline. Yeah. You can tilt the monitor up and and lie it, back. It, it all oh. it all just seamlessly integrates together oh. in this type of you know. It's, it, again, you know, just looking for for for, for five thousand dollars to burn that that oh, that would my. be. You know, I, 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 you just put a fridge beside you. Uh, and <laughs> just Stick in the catheter and you're good. Caffeine drip. Yeah. <laughs> I might be tempted to do this. You know, um, my wife and I are looking for new office furniture and this might be really nice. Nice. It's about the same price as a big desk, you know, that you would have. Yeah. 
quality furniture is not inexpensive, but yeah, yeah these these are pretty pretty toys. Udi, totally nailed that one. Yeah, knocked it out. It would be awesome if this year's winner went for something like this. Yeah. You know? I agree. That'd be, that'd be incredible. HoloLens, me, me, me. Come on, get a chair. <laughs> get a chair. <laughs> but you know, what's interesting, and you saw this in the video, is that you can use it as a standing desk as well, because it just lifts the arm and stuff and rotates sure. it. Yeah. So then you can you could stand beside it if you want to work standing for a while, and then it's like, well, I think I'll go sit in my chair and slide into the chair. Wow. And I guess you can go design crazy, too. It has 540 options. What? Yeah. You can go as nutty as you want to go. Wow. You heard it here first, kids. Nice. Altwork.com. Priced accordingly. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, wait a minute. I just got an email from altwork.com. They they said the check's in the mail. All right. Good. (laughs) You've officially been plugged. More plugs than Nicolas Cage. Oh, did I say that out loud? That's not right. <laughs> We're getting silly in our old age. There you go. Yep. All right. Let's 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 jump back into this thing because, sure. you know, the hip new term in the architecture world these days is microservices. So, mm-hmm. tell me how you incorporate the word microservices into end service bus, Udi. Oh, uh, it would just be a microservice bus, I guess. <laughs> uh, <laughs> obviously. <right>? Obviously. <laughs> right? You used to have services. You needed a service bus. Now you have microservices. You have so many more of them, right? Because they're so much smaller. <laughs> you, have, you, you absolutely a, a should ranch. not think about going anywhere near microservices without the appropriate microservice bus. Yeah, nice. that's true. You right. have a, a ranch of cattle. That you need looked after. Yep. Here's your cow hand. Love it. Right. But but, but seriously, I think that that, that that on the microservice side of things, uh, one of the things that, 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 that I've harped on at least several times in the past is, you know, if you do more and more of these remote calls, um, that, 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 that overhead is going to start hurting you. Uh, then you obviously have the problem that you're not going to be running transactions across all of these microservice boundaries. So how do you make sure that uh, the business data still ends up being consistent? even when those microservices uh, fail. And, you know, there's a lot of conversations about, oh, we're going to be using uh, Docker and Mesos and Kubernetes, and we're going to set up all of this monitoring, rebooting, restarting type of infrastructure around these microservices, which I think is great. I think it's fabulous that that the runtime componentization story has made strides because it it felt kind of stuck. Uh, around virtualization for some time where we yes. had virtual machines and nothing much really happened there for like a good five years. Uh, so getting to much lighter weight infrastructure, much more programmable infrastructure, I think is fabulous. But what doesn't seem to be talked about enough is, you know, what about the functionality and what about the business data and preserving consistency and the whole, oh, it's eventually consistent, uh, that the, the, the first time we said it, it didn't fly. The 10th time that we said it still didn't fly. <laughs> uh, you know, just saying, trust me, you know, Docker yeah. uh, this does not solve the problem. And, uh, and, and, and that's really been, been my concern around the microservices side of thing is that yeah. there's so much conversation about the service discovery and management and monitoring. And, and a lot of it is about tooling and a lot of it is about, you know, we're going to be using Docker and we're going to be using Rocket and we're going to be using CoreOS. And there's lots and lots of stuff, but the, coming back to that all and saying, wait a minute, you know, you got, you know, microservice A that's talking to three other microservices and each of them is talking to two to three other microservices. Mm-hmm. And all of that is for the purposes of achieving some business action. Right. How do you make sure that that business action happens correctly even when you got this Docker cluster that is rebooting things as they get stuck? Yeah. And, um, you know, that, that, that's kind of been a problem that, that I've been trying to solve 
pretty much from day zero with within service bus. This is not that and different from having an Azure outage, really. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, I'm, I, I'd say that if you want to build uh, reliable, um, eventually consistent microservices, as opposed to uh, unreliable, eventually inconsistent mm-hmm. microservices, uh, you're really going to need not only some kind of transactional, durable uh, service bus technology, you're also going to need to find the right boundaries for things. And that business analysis uh, is not really talked about nearly enough in the microservices community. Yeah. You know, before getting on this call, um, I, I, I went back and listened really briefly to, to Juval Lowy's uh, my, uh, talk with you guys about uh, microservices as yes. well. Right. And, and he made a great point on there that I think does not get mentioned nearly enough. Everybody kind of heaps onto the whole, you know, every class is a service, every class is a right. microservice thing. Right. Yeah. Uh, where the important thing that he mentioned in there, he said, the f- if you follow the functional decomposition style, mm. you're doing it wrong. You remember he said that? Yep. Yeah. And that's the natural way that most people have been designing software for quite some time. And therefore, the natural way that they're going to be doing microservices is so say, all right, I've got a high level business orchestration and that's going to be calling these other business functions. And those business functions are going to be calling lower level data type functions. Right. And they do this type of functional decomposition. Yeah. So you start with something that is very general and you break it up in terms of what gets called. Uh, and how atomic to make it depends on how atomic it needs to be for your particular functionality. Right. Yeah. And, you know, you, you, you were spot on there. The, the, the issue is there's not enough conversation about, well, if you're not going to be doing functional decomposition, how exactly do you decompose your microservices? Yeah. And uh, we've tried by introducing uh, async-first communications over queues to help guide people in the right direction by uh, creating a programming model, which uh, I don't want to say that it forces developers, but it strongly encourages developers uh, to model commands and events differently. That that also guides them in a better direction and and around certain limitations about what you can do with commands and events in and service bus makes it less likely that they're going to be making poor architectural choices and ending up in an architecture that either isn't reliable, doesn't scale, mm-hmm. doesn't end up being consistent for their business data. And the issue with these things is, you know, as a consultant, I, I used, to, used to spend so much time on this. People would bring me in when they're two weeks away from production. They're saying, look, we have all of these problems. What can we do? My answer was, look, you know, your only solution in the interim is to buy one big, gigantic box and deploy everything locally on that one box. So your UI, your services, your database, all of that goes on one big gigantic box. Hopefully that will solve your consistency, reliability, and performance problems. You will spend an arm and a leg Mm. on that, and it will not scale without you having to buy a 10x even bigger box. But that's the price that you pay for not having designed your system the right way. Well, that's the but recreation of the mainframe, right? But, there, but there's that's where a people danger. Of, there's a danger of going too far, isn't there? And this is some of the criticisms that have been le- levied at Yuval, is that his architecture is great for decomposition, but uh, it may be, it may go a little too far. There were some stories that were told in the comments that were um, pretty disturbing, actually, in terms of you you can. You can uh, make something so atomic that it becomes unusable. The the um, the whole thing about you know ser- uh, SQL Server queries with twenty joins comes to mind. You know, you break mm-hmm. something down so normalized that performing simple tasks just become really difficult. Do you, do you follow what I'm saying? 
Uh, I do. I think that uh, as an industry, we, we have a problem that if we say somebody's right about something, somebody else say, but they're wrong about something else. Yeah. So well, it that's depends, valid. doesn't it? No, <laughs> right. No, not everybody is right about everything exactly. all the time. Exactly. You know, a given person can say something very smart about one topic and still say something very silly about something else. Yeah. Right? And I think that's we often we- want to find solutions that apply across the board to everything, which gets me back to my it depends comment that uh, everything needs to be taken in context. Right. Yeah. Now, what we've done within Service Bus is we've taken a slightly different approach from the one that Juval has promoted with, with his infrastructure. Um, but at the higher architectural level, uh, because a bunch of people that uh, have gone both to his class and to my class have come back to me and said, you know, you guys use a lot of very different words. Uh, but the more I've tried to practice either one of these approaches, the more I realize that there's a certain core agreement between you guys that's important to call out. And the thing is that, uh, it's actually something that's fairly well known in software. It's about encapsulating volatility, that it's finding the right boundaries at the level of business volatility, which things are likely to change together versus which things are not likely to change together. And there's a great name for that. It's called the single responsibility principle. And that's been around for a long time. But instead of looking at that at just a code level, uh, both me and Juval look at that also from an architectural level and from a business level. And when you take that form of analysis uh, to its logical conclusion, you often end up with a model where you don't end up with a big, gigantic monolithic database that you need to do 20 joins on. And you don't end up with lots and lots of microservices that have to request response with each other. And you end up with these uh, larger top-to-bottom slices of business functionality and data that are highly cohesive with each other, uh, that often interact with each other in a publish-subscribe type interaction model. So, you know, coincidentally, that's one of the things that Juval built with his WCF infrastructure. He built PubSub capabilities because WCF didn't have that out of the yeah. box when it came out. Sure. Uh, because PubSub is really important. It's really necessary. Uh, and doing that in a highly reliable, transactionally consistent way is non-trivial. So, again, I, I, I don't believe that every class should be a service. And I think that the, the term micro uh, that's been uh, prefixed abused. on top of service, yes, <laughs> um, totally abused. Is, is somewhat pointing people into the wrong direction. And that, you know, some basic architectural principles like the single responsibility principle uh, have really worked well for us and that we should uh, go back to that. And again, Uh, lots of great stuff happening on the infrastructure side of things and giving us lower overhead um, and making it faster and simpler to, to, to do continuous deployment. And I think that that's, uh, that that's definitely a game changer for a lot of organizations. Mm. Yeah. Well said. I mean, I agree. And, and it goes back to what I was saying before you, you can't take always do you can't there is no always do this never do that there's there's just no such thing as that if there is it may be one or two situations at most absolutely yeah and all these strategies have built software successfully to some degree you know if there was one perfect way to write software that's what all we'd all be doing there's a whole lot of ways to be successful there's also a whole lot of ways to fail yep Mm -hmm. and i haven't found any technique that protects you from failure completely Right. Well, one of the things that I found is that uh, a lot of times we're we're overly focused on the answer. In other words, is in service bus the best service bus, or is it something else? Right. Uh, is uh, should I be using web API or should I be using service deck? And yes, yep. the answer in a lot of cases is it depends. But uh, one of the things that I try to teach people that uh, when they're in my class, they say, "Look." You never get to end a sentence with it depends. Yeah. It depends comes at the beginning of a sentence. It depends, (laughs) comma. If X, then this is the better approach. (laughs) If X, Y, and Z, then that's the better approach. Totally. That is a fully formed 
it depends answer. Yep. It is a useful it depends answer as opposed to a self-important. Well, it depends. And that's it. And right. just, just leaving it there. So for example, I can say in the pub subspace, when you're talking about uh, these sort of high level uh, business oriented bounded contexts, you really want a transactional, eventually consistent zero data loss type infrastructure like in Service Bus. When you're talking about uh, collecting information from like an IoT type of environment where you've got sensors that are transmitting information about uh, temperature and pressure and things like that, you know, you're not at all concerned about, you know, what happens if I crash and I lose some. Like, so I lost some. Yeah. Just Wake up and get the new sensor readings and keep going. So in that case, you're more interested in raw throughput and just getting that data through your pipe as quickly as possible. Right. And when you're on the more business-oriented side of things, then the transactional durability is more important to you there. And yep. even when you're in an IoT type of space, there's going to be some logic that's running and says, well, if I consistently see temperature and pressure readings that are above a certain threshold for a certain period of time, that is indicative of a problem. Yeah. That event saying we have a malfunction in section A, that's a very important business event that you wouldn't want to lose because a server crashed. So that immediately leads you to a place where saying, even when I'm doing an IoT uh, type of domain where I'm doing whatever it is, fleet management, I'm doing energy utilities, whatever. Yeah. Even there, my use of PubSub is not necessarily going to be homogeneous. I'm going to have some parts where I'm going to prefer the really lightweight, fast, just data ingestion, and I'm okay with losing it. And I'm also going to need some parts that are dealing with the higher level business events that don't get lost no matter what. And it's not a question of it depends, but in which part of my architecture am I going to be using which patterns and which infrastructure? Because most likely I will need a little bit of both. Well said. So, Udi, uh, it, we had this thought, and you do as well, about the relationship of the architecture of a microservices system to the actor model and why mm -hmm. the actor model has become so popular within this uh, milieu. Well, I think that, um, you yeah, know, it's, it's hard to, to, to say why things get popular. Uh, but the, 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 the actor model, uh, is something that, uh, historically grew from being used in the Erlang environment yes. where, yeah. uh, it, it actually, for, it, you know, some people might not know this. They must have just heard the word Erlang. Uh, Erlang was the, lang the language environment used by Sony Ericsson when they were developing their telecom switches, right. which meant every Everything is running on one big box, but that box has a lot of horsepower to it. And uh, that's what Erlang was created uh, to solve. It's how do you build those types of systems that are uh, extremely high performance, high throughput, yeah. uh, and, and also very reliable and have high uptime. And that's worked great. Um, when you start distributing things, then the fallacies of distributed computing start to, to, to make themselves felt a little bit more. Uh, and the connection between uh, actor models, where there's usually some input, like the IoT scenario of, you know, you get lots and lots of data that needs to be ingested quickly, um, is, is great for, for the actor world. Uh, but when you start trying to transition from, let's call it the, the extremely low latency, high speed data ingestion to the more reliable, durable transactional model, that's when it becomes a little bit more difficult to set up the actor infrastructure. Again, whether you're ACA on the JVM or ACA.net, uh, the philosophy of those types of environments is we give you the building blocks. It's your responsibility to put them together the right way to solve your business problems. Now, when you're, again, on the business event side of things, uh, it's really important to put the pieces together well. 
And if you don't, it isn't always clear that you did. Now, one of the things that I wanted to mention uh, about in-service bus, because we've kind of been on the sidelines of the whole actor discussion for some time, is that with sagas in in-service bus, uh, you can actually have a very highly reliable, highly consistent implementation of an actor model that makes a lot of sense, but not the way that most people think of sagas as a kind of workflow orchestrator type thing, but more as, um, let's call it an event-driven model. Hmm. So um, imagine a case where you're, you, you want to have some sort of discount policy that the more that somebody buys from you, the higher the discount that they're going to get. Now, you can create a – so in in-service bus, all sagas are inherently stateful. You mm -hmm. can create a, a discount policy object as a saga, as an actor that's listening to all of these events that are coming in from customer purchases. And ultimately, it's holding on to that state of what's the discount level for a person. In essence, you end up with a saga, an actor that lives forever, effectively. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that's a very powerful model for building a lot of business systems because it allows you to get rid of a lot of batch jobs that you would have otherwise had to run to say, all right, let's go through all of yesterday's orders because it's not the kind of thing that we can afford to do in real time. Yeah. So with sagas and using them in that actor style in in-service bus, you can actually build these types of real-time actor-oriented functionality that do time series event processing in a yeah. stateful way yeah. and have all of that, again, transactionally consistent out of the box for really important business functionality uh, that otherwise would have just been languishing in batch jobs somewhere. Hmm. I, I just... It, it fills me with terror to think in terms of batch jobs at any, all anymore with the volume of data we've got. And the fact that you have stuff like the cloud, where as long as we can stay asynchronous, we should be able to spin off all this additional work out of the primary transaction flow and keep moving. Well, that's the thing, that, that you need to build it in such a way that even though it's outside the transaction flow, you know, you're saying, well... If a customer is supposed to get a discount, yes, uh, they should get the discount on this purchase, not eventually on some other purchase later on. Right. So we need to build a model that allows for, in essence, batch processing to be able to to be handled differently in such a way that it can be incorporated real time into our business processing, and that's what the uh, event driven model of having stateful actors helps us solve because it allows us to create these objects that have already pre-calculated what level of discount the person is supposed to get based on all of that information. Mm. And they can handle all of the history of purchase orders by listening to those events over time and building in, uh, an internal data model to represent that. So it can still be done async with regards to history and still be done real time with regards to regular business processing in a way that's also cloud-friendly. Udi, do you have any reference architectures that people can, you know, white papers or code or both uh, videos or anything people can uh, look at and study? Oh, uh, well, I've been speaking on these topics for, for quite some time. So I guess that would be uh, a yes. <laughs> yeah, that, 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 that would be a big yes. A big yes. Uh, will you, you still do workshops on this, right? Right, right. So I have a, a, a five-day class where I really go from basic principles all the way through to uh, how to solve these problems in healthcare, how to solve these problems in retail, how to wow. solve these problems in financial services, and uh, go into detailed levels of this is why your commands would look like this, and this is why you'd be using an event for that, and this is why UI composition is important. Great. So, um, you know, there's there's a lot of those videos out there. Uh, We've collected a ton of them uh, 
on the particular .NET website. So uh, a lot of it you'll see, you know, low level detailed and service bus stuff and high level architecture stuff like how to manage microservices and then service bus on the Windows Azure platform. Uh, and you know, there's also the, the, the option of, uh, you know, getting some of the, the five day workshop for free. Hmm. So, uh, that's meaty nutritional goodness, my friend. Awesome. Lots and lots of nutritional goodness there. So, uh, we'll put some links in the show notes and make sure that, that you can get that. And of course, if you have any architectural questions about anything that we've mentioned, just put those in the show notes and, uh, me and my team will be looking at those and happy to engage in the conversation and respond right there. Udi, thank you for helping us and continuing to help us solve these complex problems and, uh, for talking with us over this last hour. It's been great. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks, Carl. Thanks, Richard. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a dog.